Welcome to My Comic Shop History. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is our special post-San Diego Comic-Con episode. Uh, let me get right into it and introduce my guests. I am joined by two gentlemen today. We have New York Times reporter George Gustinez. George, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And right next to George, we have returning guest and my Comic-Con roommate, Mike Sangregorio. Thanks. Happy to be here. Mike, the last time you were here... We sat at this very table at All Yeah Comics, and we had a book club discussion about New Frontier. And over the course of that recording, you drove me up the wall by pouring through the New Frontier book while we were having our discussion. It, uh, it kind of drove me nuts. And I, I turned it into a little supercut at the start of that episode. I, I, I like to think that I've gotten many new listeners for this podcast because everyone I meet, I make them listen to that first minute supercut <laughs> of me getting berated. And without fail, every one of them goes, oh, yeah, that's you. I respect this guy for finally calling, <laughs> calling you on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all worked out. I was very happy with the supercut we got out of it. and uh, I loved I, it, by the way. I, I really I listen to it constantly. I think it's hilarious. I think it, it, it's very funny and I appreciated it. Well, I appreciate you being a good sport about it. I didn't know how you would take the, uh, the supercut. So oh, you, you would know, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Mike, I want to talk about our Comic-Con experience. Um, but first, I just kind of want to turn to George here and just explain how we cross paths. So we actually met in person for the first time about 20 minutes ago. Uh, here that at, is correct. Here at all, yeah. Um, but we crossed paths um, a little over a year ago. I reached out to you to see if it would be possible to do a story on the closing of alternate realities and, by extension, the podcast about the closing of alternate realities. And unfortunately, you know, the, the story itself didn't work out, but I was just really struck by and appreciative of how gracious and friendly and responsive you were in, in our exchange um, and that always stayed with me, and, and we were able to keep in touch through Facebook. And over the past year, I've seen you posting uh, not only the articles that you write for the Times, but pictures of your action figure collection and the superhero puzzles that, that you're working on. Uh, so I'm glad that it worked out, and we were able to get you on the show here. Oh, I'm sorry. You, uh, you have to live through all my Facebook posts. I know they're constant. It's a constant stream of geek. Yeah, well, it's all good stuff. Uh, now, I did send you some, some prep ahead of time. This was not on there. This is, I'm going to hit you with a hard-hitting question right out of the gate. You write for the New York Times. You've been on NPR. Most recently, you were just on uh, the Comixology podcast. What are you doing here early on a Sunday morning on my little show? You must have better things to do. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm a big fan of comics. Uh, you struck me as a very nice person. Uh, and I thought, why not? This would be fun. I've also wanted to check out this store since I heard uh, that it opened last year. So uh, I stupidly didn't put it together until I was on the train over here thinking, wait a minute, that's the store I wanted to check out. So this is perfect. Cool. Well, I am glad it worked out. Uh, so Mike, as I said, we, we attended San Diego Comic-Con uh, just about a week ago as of this recording. Uh, we were roommates. We, uh, we stayed uh, in Old Town, so not, not yep. too far away from, from the heart of the convention area. Just far enough away. Just far enough, yeah. <laughs> we discovered that, I know we're like a few years late here, but we discovered Uber. Not discovered Uber, like we had used it before with other people. We but single-handedly discovered yeah. it. Everyone else, everyone <laughs> invest, else needs to get invest, on this. Invest, invest. It's a good opportunity. Yeah, yeah. But we finally downloaded the app and started using it, and that's how we got to and from the hotel, you know, the convention center. It worked yeah. out great. No, it, it really did. I mean, it was out of necessity, but it was one of those things where it's like, okay, now I understand why every single person I know uses this service. So this was your sixth time at San Diego Comic-Con. 
and second with Bleeding Cool. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, this was my, my sixth one, and then the second time actually reporting for, for Rich at BleedingCool.com. And this was my second time there in general and first time with Bleeding Cool. So we did go as reporters for comic book news slash gossip site Bleeding Cool, hence the title of our episode here, Mild-Mannered Reporters. And I want to get into the reporting aspect of it a little bit later. But right now, just sort of what were some of your highlights of the experience? Uh, For me, there were two. Uh, In the episode that we recorded right before Comic-Con, I talked about uh, what my grail was for the show. Uh, Gentle Giant put out a micro, a three-pack of micro figures based on the Kenner Superpowers line. It was Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. And... um, so on during preview night of convent of the convention, uh, that was my first stop. When I got onto the convention floor, I got in line for the Gentle Giant booth, and I was able to snag not only the three pack of micro figures, but they also had these jumbo prototype versions of Batman and Superman. The Batman one I passed on, but I did grab the Superman one. It was a bit of a spur of the moment uh, purchase, but I, I was able to grab that. So, the, so that was cool. The look on your face when you came back to the hotel, clutching the Superman prototype, and it dawned on you that you needed to get this back to New York somehow was one of my highlights of the show. Yeah. <laughs> How tall is it? Is it like? Well, the figure itself, I would say, is it maybe a foot tall, but with the packaging, you know, add on maybe another six inches. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there was definitely a wave of buyer's remorse where I was like, this is so cool, but what am I going to do with this now? So this was probably one of the lowlights of the convention, (laughs) but they have FedEx set up in the in the lobby of the convention center. And so they packed it up and boxed it up and, and shipped it home to me. Um, probably the biggest ripoff of the convention, I would say it, no joke. It cost as much to ship the figure as it did to buy the figure. And it, oh, it was I, not a cheap figure. I personally believe that that's always the case because in years past when I've purchased like my one weakness is tr- anything Transformers exclusive, I've had the same experience. It costs exactly the same amount I paid for the thing, which is not cheap, to ship it home to me. And it's always like, why? Why did I do this? But then you get the package a couple of days later when the jet lag's worn off and you're like, oh, okay, I am glad to have this thing in my house. Yeah. So that was one highlight. The other one was... Anyone who has followed the show or, or my projects generally knows about Steve Odo, the former owner of Alternate Realities. And at San Diego Comic-Con, I met a dead ringer for Steve Odo, and I took a picture with him. I've already posted it on the podcast Facebook page. If you haven't liked the page, please go and like it. I'm going to post the photo again. Uh, the, un- the resemblance is uncanny. It was, it was amazing. So uh, I don't know if this, this is sad or not, but that was probably my <laughs> highlight of the convention was meeting his doppelganger. You were so happy, like this genuine joy when we found him that I, I was just happy for you. I, my comment, which didn't make it onto the, the original post, was it was as if you had rebooted your kind of personal mythos, the store's mythos as like ultimate Steve Odo. And this guy was a dead ringer for, for that version. Yeah, absolutely. So what were some of your invention highlights, Mike? Um, this this year was just kind of um, trying things I hadn't done before. So my first year with Bleeding Coal last year, I, I just kind of got the lay of the land as a semi-professional or whatever you want to call it. This year, I kind of branched out a little bit more. My highlight of the show was probably sitting in on the round table with the guys from Rick and Morty. Uh, I am a fan of that show um, and being able to sit there. I didn't get any questions in, unfortunately, but just being close to the cast, the producers, everything else, hearing them talk very casually, that was a, was a big highlight for me. 
What about when we creepily stalked Grant Morrison outside the convention center? <laughs> so, yeah. So if you go to Bleeding Cool and you type in uh, my last name, the easiest way to find my articles, you'll probably see more than a few about Grant Morrison. I'm a huge Grant Morrison fan, as anyone who's known me for longer than five minutes will find out. Um, I covered one of his panels uh, late at night uh, for the, well, not late, but the later in the day uh, for Heavy Metal, where he was recently announced as editor-in-chief. And uh, I was leaving. I was going to meet Anthony for dinner. And I just happened to be walking behind him the entire time. And as we were eventually kind of branching off to go our way, Anthony looks at me and goes, you, you really want to just follow him and see where he's going, don't you? <laughs> and I just, I kind of just looked sheepishly at the floor, said nothing. But part of me was thinking, well, you, you know, you never know. This is, this could be how a great friendship starts. Well, it's funny because we were walking and I was going on probably about the superpowers figures that I had found that day. I found a booth and they had a bunch of, they weren't in the original packaging, but they were in, in very nice condition of the original superpowers figures. So wow. I was probably going on about that. And I noticed Mike was elsewhere. And then he goes, that's Grant Morrison ahead of us. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I look ahead and I see the, the bald head and I'm like, oh, that's him. That's great. So we were walking for a little bit. And then at one point we're stopped waiting to cross the street. And I go to Mike, I'm like, would you want to go up and talk to him? Because it would have taken nothing, just a few steps and a tap on the shoulder. Sure. And you would have been there. And you're like, no, 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 let's just follow. <laughs> and then it got to the point where he was going one way. And I think that might have been the night of the comic book legal defense that, that fund was, party. Yeah, that was that night. So we were going off in another direction. And it, there came that moment where I'm like, well, all right, what do you want to do here? <laughs> and then we, we parted. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've, I've met him before and he's a, he's a great guy. I just, I didn't want to bother him. I was a little, I don't know, I guess I was a little nervous, but I, I just, yeah, I, you rather admire from afar. I, I'd, ra I'd rather admire from afar. I'd hate to be. I'd hate to be the story he tells a year from now and be like, "Oh man, this one guy just kept stalking me at every panel." And that might be the case if he ever listens to this. But <laughs> no, I, I was happy to just uh, to, to sit through the panels I did with him. I can identify because people who know me know I'm a huge Rocky fan, huge Sylvester Stallone fan, and people have said because there have been opportunities at, at conventions actually to you know do a, a photo or, or an autograph or whatever, and I've kind of said like I don't want to because I in case it's a bad experience i don't want that to sour everything <laughs> that, right, you know that's right. come before i kind of rather like you admire from afar and enjoy the work and be inspired that way i don't really need to have that interaction i mean I, i've met him briefly at once at new york and once at san diego and he is the nicest guy in the world it was more like me like i am always afraid i'm going to babble or say something ridiculous or uh you know um interrupt something that he's doing so i was just you know just happy to to have been there that was all so yeah, I mean overall it was it was a really fun weekend, a positive experience, um, and so that was that was our com our Comic Con. And we can talk a little bit more about being reporters. Uh, well, I actually have a couple of questions about that. Oh I mean, yes, please. Does Bleeding Cool have like a fleet of reporters at San Diego? Because I'm I'm not sure how it works or how you were recruited. Sure, sure. Um, well, our our recruitment story is a little different, but just in general, I know this year we had probably on the floor close to a dozen reporters yeah. doing, you know, a variety of tasks. Some people were taking just photos. Some people were, I think at least one person was just taking videos. Um, a lot of these, a lot of these people were recurring. So they kind of knew their beats. They kind of knew who was covering uh, screenings, who was covering hardcore comic stuff, who was covering everything else. Um, a lot of people like Anthony and I were, were relatively new. A lot of people, a few people like Anthony, this was their first year covering with them. Um, so, you know, we would meet, after the show closed and kind of debrief for the day, usually at one of the bars <laughs> and, um, and, and yeah, it definitely, it definitely ran a spectrum from people who kind of had the, everyone's name and contact on a, on a list somewhere to the two of us who were just like, Oh wow, you know that guy, what's he's like? So, 
Yeah, I think the way this probably happened for us, our mutual friend Crystal Lando, who you've oh, probably sure. yeah, yeah, you know him, yep. uh, Marvel PR, um, he went for Bleeding Cool a few years ago, um, and after, that was after he attended with you, right? As yeah, part he, of the screening, I believe. Yep. Yeah, so my comic shop documentary played at the film festival there in 2011, and he came out with me, and then yeah, I think the year after he went for Bleeding Cool. Mm-hmm. And then after that, he was headhunted by, by Marvel, and yeah. he ended up uh, in his in his current position. It, it's funny, actually, if I could just throw this in real quick. There were a few times this convention where I had just a quick, quick question for someone on the panel, who uh, any panel who worked for Marvel, and I would be told, speak with Chris Delando. Not because they knew that I knew him, just because he was the guy. He's so the I, guy. He's the guy. So I would literally just text him like I normally would for anything else. And then I'd be like, so this is kind of work related. Can you confirm something? And he'd be like, oh yeah, of course. Or, you know, no, come and come and find me or something like that. So huh. it was, it was, it was great. And if Chris is listening to this, thank you again and appreciate all the opportunities. Yeah. Now he's a great guy. And, and yeah, that led to you doing it. And then you kind of turned me on to it. Yeah. That's how I, it worked I, out. We, uh, you know, every year, Rich Johnston, the, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The head of Bleeding Cool sends out kind of a message that just says, if you'd like to come back, let me know. If you want to bring in other people who have you know, written in some capacity, let me know. So this year when it went out, I sent out to a few people and, and Anthony was one of the ones who got back to me almost immediately. And it just worked out that we were able to go out there and get a lot out of it. Yeah, Rich was not able to attend personally this year, so we were his his minions on the floor, and he was kind of pulling the strings from London. Yeah, it's it's funny though to still feel his presence, even though he was he was you know back home back in London. I mean, you'd get you know the 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 the, the text, the messages, and everything else, but still, he he clearly had other people there, other contacts and stuff, because the site is being updated by by you know more. Uh, using information that we're not necessarily giving him. So he still got this network and it was, it was good. I don't really think the site suffered for it, but I, I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah. So that was our Comic-Con experience. Uh, so I kind of want to turn it to you now, George. Uh, your experience dwarfs ours. <laughs> so, you know, I really want to get your take, but before we get into your, you know, you know, your current position at the Times, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your comic shop history, as I like to say. So uh, recently you were on the Comixologist podcast and you talked about how you got into this world first through the Super Friends cartoon, which you called your gateway drug. That's right. And then later a copy of Justice League 200 uh, that your, your sister got for you. So I suppose my first question is, what was it about those things that really hooked you? And are those the same things that have kept you coming back and, and kept you so much in this world decades later? Uh, I, oh, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure what connected me with the Super Friends, but, but I mean, you know, I was a kid. I would see the TV show every Saturday morning. I would get really excited when they would do those uh, preview shows of like the coming season. And if Super Friends wasn't part of it, I'd be very upset. So I sort of knew I became obsessed very early. I think uh, I probably grew up during the challenge of the Super Friends uh, era. So you got everybody. You had like the, practically the whole Justice League there. So I was just, I think I was mesmerized by all the colors and all the characters. And I didn't realize until later that they existed in comic books as well. So when I found that, it was sort of like, okay, please give me more and more and more. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that, you know, I've seen your posts on Facebook. You post your, your, your action figure collection, for example. How much time effort money space has gone into cultivating that collection because it's pretty impressive and it's mostly dc based correct yes yes uh, i thought about that question uh, a bit because i'm probably afraid to find out how much i've spent on this um i you know i live in new york there's limited space so in a way to sort of contain my 
insanity. I thought, I'm only going to get DC Direct Justice League figures and Teen Titans figures. I'm a big fan of both teams. But I've sort of broken the rule by getting a lot of custom figures of those teams, particularly the Teen Titans, because there's going to be a lot of characters who will never, ever get an action figure. But there's a lot of dedicated fans who make them on eBay. So I've spent a lot of money uh, amassing my collection. The custom figure, that's interesting. That, I feel like that could be its own episode. And this has come up in the context its of... Its own sad, sad episode. <laughs> <laughs> but this has come up, you know, uh, the Funko Pop figures. That's kind of been a theme this season. They, I feel like I've brought, discussed them in almost every episode. But, um, you, know, you know, people do make custom figures of those as well. And for as many different pops as there are out there, there are still ones that, you know, they haven't made yet. And hopefully they will at some point. But... For the time being, I am kind of tempted to have some made, but I feel like that's a very slippery slope. How do you kind of keep that under control? Because it's, I mean, you know, it's one thing if you're just selecting among what's out there, but when you right. can have anything made, how do you how do you do that? I, I can't keep it under control. That's that's part of the problem. I also, I mean, you know, I, I sort of know the limits of my uh, appreciation of the Titans. There are certain characters even I'm too embarrassed to order as a custom. So it's just like, I, I won't do it. So I'll pretty much stick to the, there's a couple of customers who I follow on eBay who seem to have grown up in the same era that I did. So they hit certain figures automatically. So I sort of like contain myself to that. So you're not commissioning them. You're just seeing. I have commissioned them in the past, (laughs) but I don't anymore. Can I ask just because I'm not a huge DC guy, but I'm a fan of the stuff in general. Who, Who have you commissioned? Uh, the characters, you mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. oh, uh, I I got like a, a Phantasm. I have oh, a, nice. a Danny Chase. Um, there's other sad ones that who, are. I'm sorry. Who is Danny Chase? I don't even know that name. Uh, he was the sort of the dorky uh, telekinetic member who joined, I guess, just before Titan's Hunt. If you're a Titan's Hunt. Oh, okay. Hunt. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Mas y Menos. Uh, I have customs of those also. <laughs> so it's extensive. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I'm a little jealous, actually. <laughs> so while, you know, the main thrust of this episode is is the reporting, mild-mannered reporters uh, bit, uh, you know, the general theme of the season is collecting. So, you know, you hit on the action figures, but, you know, generally what was your, or what has been your progression as a collector going from, again, getting into it with Super Friends and, and that one comic book to, you know, where you are today? Yeah. Well, you mentioned the superpowers uh, figures earlier, and I I remember going to Toys R Us as a kid and seeing them on display there. And maybe I'm uh, conflating two things, but for some reason I felt I opted for Masters of the Universe instead of superpowers, which I regret to this day because if I had bought them then, I would I'm sure I would have like a full set. Uh, and it was the first time I saw like the entire Justice League in action figure form, so I was really happy with that. Um, after that, I think just once I became an adult, uh, I had more money to spend. So the DC Direct figures just were, were, were way too appealing and I couldn't pass them up. Cool. Um, I don't know what that was. But <laughs> <laughs> we are. Time's up. Oscar's yeah, speech yeah. is over. That's done. That's done. <laughs> once again, we are recording in a, in a live open comic book shop. So if you hear anything in the background, it's the activity at, at All Yeah Comics. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to ask you along the lines of, of being a collector, are there any specific buying or collecting habits that, that you've exhibited either in the past or that, or that you currently do now? Um, hmm. I mean, the DC Direct habit, uh, I'm not sure beyond that. I, I think we briefly, maybe we sent a, a message about this, sort of uh, 
it's kind of overwhelming to have a collection after a while. So there are times where I look at all the action figures on the shelves and I'm just thinking like, why did I do this to myself? It's like, they have to be dusted. And when I get a new one, they have to be rearranged. It's just a lot of work. Uh, so I still love them, but I also hate them. So I'm not sure if you can relate. <laughs> yeah, I can. I, and, you know, I've experienced that in, in, in talking to a lot of other people, particularly within our alternate realities group. You know, there is that fine line. You know, you enjoy them, but then it, it can be work and, and even sometimes a, a burden, you yeah. know, at, at yeah. a certain point. And you do take your action figures out of their, their packaging. Yes, I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm not like an obsessive collector in that way where I think they're going to go up in value or anything. It's just like, you know, I want them on display in a certain way. It actually takes less space this way. So if yes. they were all in their boxes, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. What, Mike, do you really do action figures or not Not so much? I, I used to. So the everything you're saying about them kind of becoming overwhelming, that was, that was me in high school and college where I was getting Marvel Legends, McFarlane toys, Transformers, anything to get my hands on. And now... It is overwhelming, and I almost wish I hadn't done this to myself. I, I'm, I'm with you. I open the ones that I like because mostly I want to be able to put that, like the, the cover in my head, the lineup in my head. I want to be able to put those guys together. Um, but you know, for the, for the most part, I have way too many action figures, and they're all sitting in a basement somewhere. And I almost part of me wishes I could, I could just kind of get rid of them. <laughs> I do have the ones I love. I'm, I'm more of a Marvel guy, so when the Marvel Legends ramped up, and I could start getting you know, perfect reproductions of all my Spider-Man favorite characters, members of the Avengers, X-Men before, you know, current stuff happened. I, I love those and I would never get rid of them, but uh, I just unfortunately don't have the space to display them right now. It's funny, only recently have I become somewhat of an action figure collector, mostly with the superpowers ones. Uh, but for the longest time, I was always like, you know, statues and that's it. You know, statues are men by statues. And, and now recently, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I've never heard that. You that should have pounded your fist yeah. when you said that. Uh, but now recently, I've gotten more into the action figures. Like I said, specifically with the superpowers and the pops, too. I mean, I mean those are toys. Those are, those are not action figures. Maybe not no. action figures, but they're not statues. They are, I mean, they are they, toys. They're somewhere in between. They're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're collectibles. They're collectible. I don't know, figurines, but they, you can't you can't pose them. True, you know I, I have a bunch of Spider-Man or a bunch of Captain Americas or like a, a good Punisher figure. You know, those get posed. You know, every time I want to change, especially you mentioned dusting them, and that was like my number one thing. Is I would constantly be dusting them, and then little parts would be falling off the poorer made ones. So um, yeah, no, I, I feel like you got to be able to pose it to be an action figure. That's just me. Though. That's actually the worst with the custom figures. They're so fragile that uh, I sort of have them stacked like a domino. So every so often one falls and then it's like forget it i need like a an emergency room for some of the figures the that's actually <laughs> i i didn't get as many customs as i think you're describing but back in the day before marvel legends i used to get the more um the ones who weren't around and it would be the same problem like you'd get them and you'd try to take care of them but it would just be like you know almost not worth the work when something would go wrong <laughs> right it collapsed right. or everything else i i echo that I should also point out that, I mean, at this point, because of the movies and the TV shows and everything, it's like I feel any character is is capable of getting an action figure. There were a couple of times where I ordered a couple of Titans figures, figuring they would never be made. And then in three months, DC Direct announced them as their next wave. I was like, God damn it. And with the action figures, are they primarily limited to your home or have they invaded your office at the Times? Unfortunately, they've invaded my office uh, at the Times as well. My friend is a big Funko guy, and he sent me a couple of JLA Funkos. And because I'm obsessive, I thought, well, now I have to get the big <laughs> 16 
So I have every JLA Funko that's been made up to like Firestorm. That's my cutoff. Sorry, did you say the big 16? That's what I call like my era of the Justice League. <laughs> that is No, that is great. I, I have only ever said big seven. Um, right, but, right. Okay. Uh, a more normal person would say big seven. No, no, I'm, I'm not sure. That's great. I, 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 am, I may steal that, honestly. <laughs> so that is, that is through satellite era? Exactly. That, until, okay. uh, yeah, I guess before, until crisis, like when that team is over. I have a very weird question. I, I really like the character Phantom Stranger. Would yeah. you include him as part of the 16? I do not count him, though not. he okay. is in that era. And I, I'm obviously excluding uh, Vixen, Gypsy, and... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah the Detroit League. Right, sure. exactly. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> it's funny, though, that you say, like, all right, I got those couple, and then I had to get the rest, because that's one of the things that we've been exploring this season, is that completist mentality. Like, what, what drives us? What made you feel like you needed to have all of them. I, 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 I wish I knew. If I knew the psychology of it, I, could, I would try to solve it. But it's just like, you know, you just get obsessed with certain characters. And the JLA is that obsession for me. You know, again, they were my gateway drug to comics. So that all the heroes in JLA 200 are sort of my JLA. So, uh, you know, plus Hawkgirl. She makes 16. Yeah, absolutely. What has been the response of your colleagues to these, to these figures in your office? Uh, a lot of them take, they, they enjoy coming to my office. I have some original art on my walls. They see the toys, especially when their kids are in the office. They like, oh, let's go see George's office. Uh, and, you know, they, a lot of them know I write about comics for the paper. So it seems like, oh, of course, like, of course your office looks like this because you write about comics. And I do, you know, really want to get uh, more into that. I, I suppose my last question on the collecting front has to do with digital comics, because I know, Mike, you know, I know just from talking to you that that's really the direction you've moved in. And George, I know from the Comixology episode that you are a big uh, digital reader as well. And you also mentioned that you got rid of a lot of your physical books uh, when you made the switch to digital. How have you gone about divesting yourself of them? Um, it was it was hard once it was hard to start and once I started I became obsessed and it's like I want to get rid of these as quickly as possible um, you know it was a like the Strand in New York takes uh, a trade a paperbacks I got rid of a lot on eBay it was mostly to try to make more space in our apartment so limited New York real estate will drive a lot of decisions yeah and Mike have you kept have you kept your physical books or have you gotten rid of them no i i still have my physical books but it's not it's not because i don't want to get rid of them i just currently have the space to kind of store them and never look at them but yeah my my goal would be to get rid of as many single issues as i could and just going forward stick with comiXology just because it, it's a space saver and yep. uh and they're just easier to get i mean just the other day i was trying to find a single issue and i had to dig through a dozen long boxes to find it and if it's on cx i can i can just pull it off of my phone so you know it's that that level, level of ease it, there's always a level of regret, though. Like, I had 12 long boxes at some point, and uh, DC and Marvel don't have everything on Comixology, so it's yeah. sort of like, oh, I can't read that issue because it's gone now. Yeah, and then, I mean, there's certain there's certain ones that just, they have that, that tactile experience. I mean, there's certain books by Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, I'm, I'm never getting rid of. I mean, even if they are adapted, it's like, I remember getting that or searching for it at Comic-Con and stuff like that, and there's always going to be, like, you know, a couple of short boxes in, in my house, no matter what. So You picked up a copy of Invisibles number one at San Diego, right? Yeah. And I remember it, you brought it back to the room and you were, and you were talking about how, you know, you can, you can see the ads and you can see what was popular at the time. And it, yeah. it definitely is a different experience. I, I'm big, I'm big about context. So I want to know not only, 
you know, the story that was going on and, and as much behind the scenes stuff as I can, but what was the literal environment that this thing was produced in? And this was just one of those instances that only happens at Comic-Con where I was trying to go down one alley and it was blocked and I had to go down another and I just happened to look up and I knew that, that cover with this, this hand grenade thing uh, staring back at me and I asked the guy if that was an original. He said, absolutely, I bought it. And it was just one of those things where the next line I was sitting on, I was flipping through it and it's like, well, I've read this comic a dozen times, but in trade. So seeing it with the ads, seeing it with the original coloring, seeing it with everything else, it's like, in a way, it's reading it for the first time. And based on the story that's in that comic, it kind of added another level because it's all about the nature of things. So yeah, it was one of those where it's like, that's probably not one I'm going to give away when I'm trying to get rid of most of my long boxes. You know, the Spawn stuff, that's going. The Invisibles, probably keeping that one. Yeah. I mean, I had a, I used to have a sizable amount of single issues, and over the years, I got rid of them either through alternate realities or eBay. Those are pretty much the, the two uh, primary ways that, that I unloaded my stuff. But at Comic-Con, I, there was one vendor, and they had a ton of sets, full runs of series. They were not priced very competitively. I mean, they were, they were uh, uh, a little pricey. And there were a number of things I saw that I used to have, and it was maybe the first time where I felt a little, like, just the tiniest hint of seller's remorse, where part of me was almost like, oh, should I grab this? And I was like, no, no, like, I've, I've had this, I don't need to have it again, I probably have it in trade paperback form, or it's available there if I want it. Right. I, I gotta say with that, I mean, I, I have sold stuff, not the bulk of my collection, but it's one of those things where... If I sold it, on some level, I wanted to get rid of it. Right. Like, I've had books, mostly Spider-Man books, that I, I, you know, people have offered me money for it. And I said, absolutely not. I, I would regret it, and I would end up spending more getting that back. Hmm. But if I, I feel like if I sold it, if I listed it on eBay or gave it to a friend or something like that, some part of me was saying, you, you don't need that. So, I don't know. I would say trust yourself in that environment. And I kind of had that. I went through that same thought process where I was walking up and down the aisles and I was like, you know, what are you doing? It's like you did get rid of these for a reason. You had them for a long time. You, you know, you were not going to go and read them again. You're not going to read them now. Just keep walking. But it was, it was interesting to, to see it and it did give me a, just a little bit of, of pause. Uh, so before we move on, the, the last thing that I wanted to ask you, George, about the, uh, the, the not so much maybe collecting, but just sort of your, your, your fandom, I suppose. Please tell us about the puzzles. <laughs> You've really done your research. I'm very embarrassed. Uh, well, it's mostly just Facebook stalking. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give me too much credit. <laughs> it's uh, it's just uh, I'm a big jigsaw puzzle fan. My friend Walter, who uh, you'll see me post about frequently on uh, Facebook, is also a jigsaw puzzle fan. We're also DC fans. We we have a lot of similarities. So uh, he discovered some on Amazon, and we started trading them back and forth uh, upon doing them. So, of course, the obsession kicks in. It's like, okay, I'm okay on Photoshop. I'm going to start creating some uh, collages and turn them into puzzles. So it's been like a Legion puzzle, a Justice League puzzle. I obsessively went through the first, uh, I guess, 63 issues of the New Teen Titans, pulling out a panel per issue. So they were all represented, and I turned that into collage, which became a puzzle. And it took me like a week to do uh, so to solve the puzzle, I mean, once I, I had it done. So that's with Walter now, and it's gone to like two other people. So it's sort of just, it's like a, it's a chain letter. Once he and I are done with it, it goes to other fans. And you commission artists as well to, to draw the characters. That, that was for his birthday. Uh, he was turning 50, huge Legion fan. And um, at the last New York City uh, convention, we were having fun getting like these random sketches by artists. And I thought this would be a... a a fun way to create a puzzle for him. So I commissioned 
uh, 30 artists to draw various members of the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, and it was it was amazing fun. And I mean, when Jim Lee is one of the artists, I mean, there were some big names there that I could not believe said yes. So it was sort of each part of the process was just amazing because I was getting to interact with all these incredible artists. I knew it was a gift for Walt, so I didn't feel guilty uh, asking for uh, for help and getting this done. So it was incredible. Mike, that's what we need to do when we want to reach out to creators. Just pretend yeah. it's for the... We're not, well, in this case, it's not pretending, but we can just pretend it's for the other guy. It'll be yeah. great. Yeah, no, if I, if I knew Jim Lee would, would accept that type of request, I, <laughs> I may have to go back to a few of my earlier ideas. So, But is this an example of you know your access as a journalist, as someone who's, who's interviewing these people, or did you also get people who you've never No, to I, it was definitely a mix of people. Uh, friends of friends had recommended people. And actually, I was super careful not to blur the line of right. uh like i may have to talk to these people for a story and i don't want it to be too cozy a relationship i mean you know it's not like we're talking about the pentagon papers when i write about comics but <laughs> you also want some distance in right in reporting so interesting and then how do you have the the digital images made into a puzzle uh, that's, you know, it's, uh, I, I can, it's, I'm trying to think of the name of the site, but there's, there, there are many puzzle websites where you just upload the image and, uh, you know, it'll check to see if the, um, resolution works and then they turn it into a puzzle like within a week. Very cool. Well, those, I mean, those sound like really fun projects. Again, obs- obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm working on one right now that's taking me like three weeks to finish. Cool. Now, you know, it's always interesting to me when I have people on the show who have turned their passion for comic books and the comic book world into a career, something I'm trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) The getting paid for it part, that still eludes me. I haven't cracked that yet. I feel like I'm getting closer, but it's always interesting to me, uh, and I'm always curious to hear what people's journeys have been. So for you, again, you you know, you're a reporter for the New York Times, you cover a number of things, not just comic books, but I know you do cover comics when, you know, whenever you have the opportunity to. But just if you don't mind taking us back a little bit, where and, and when did journalism enter the picture for you? Uh, sure. My sister works at the Times, uh, and she's the one who got me in. So I, in many ways, I'm sort of following her example. Is this the sister who got you the Justice League yes, comic? Yes, oh, so she's really, one. yes. Same yeah, one. She's, she's been guiding had quite you. an influence <laughs> on my life. Uh, she went to, communi- to college for communications, uh, you know, she was the first person in the family to go to college. So I was sort of just like, okay, I'll do that. Uh, so I ended up at the Times, not really intending to write. It was sort of like an after-school job. Uh, and 26 years later, I'm still there. So it's worked out pretty well. Um, I wasn't out of the closet when it came to the comic book collecting. So it was sort of just being uh, in the right place at the right time. I call myself the Forrest Gump of the New York Times. I just happened to be at the... <laughs> where, where I'm needed at the time. Uh, a, a section I was working for needed some content one week, and I said that I could write a shopping column about going to different places and visiting a comic store as a way to get me on an airplane to go to these places. So uh, people noticed that, and then it sort of just got rolling from there. And you've had a number of different roles at the paper since you've been there, is that right? Yes, that's right. So I'm not technically a reporter. I the writing about comics is is all sort of stuff I do on the side of my real job. Uh, I'm a senior editor right now in the video department, but I've done everything. I've answered phones, I've made copies, I've edited letters to the editor, I've worked on our website. Uh, so uh, my job has changed uh, pretty much every two years. 
Well, there goes the title of our episode. I'll have to amend it. <laughs> it's still accurate. I, I report on comics. I'm just not a re- an official reporter. Well, I feel like that all, that makes us all uh, kin, sort of. I mean, you and I may have worked as reporters, but we're certainly not reporters. That's, so. Yes, that's true. Yeah, if, if anything, it makes the uh, the title more accurate. And you put it in quote marks, so yeah, you, you no. can get away with anything with a quote mark. With anything. Quote mark, any, anything at all with quote marks. I like it. That's how, uh, that's how I'm going to look at it. Once, once again, I name an episode. That's why I'm here, people. <laughs> Now, I've been fortunate enough to, to read a number of your pieces. And, and Mike, I know you, uh, you took some time and, and you looked through some of George's articles. What, which, what are some of the ones that you've got a chance to read? Sure. Um, actually, it's, it's, I don't want to say funny, but I saw your um, piece on Dave Stevens, the Rocketeer creator, and I realized I had read it back in the day. <laughs> wow. And it was, um, outside of just being a fan of the Rocketeer, I hadn't known that much about him. So I remember reading that. Um, when it when it came out at the time and looking more into him. So thank you for that because I pretty much have everything that he's ever done since then and uh, I remember that that really sparked it for me. Um, but since then I read the Darwin Cook piece. I read um, I read a lot. <laughs> I read a piece on faith that you had done. I read um, oh there was there was a lot. There's pretty much anything that came up on the on the on googling your name in the right, new york right. times so uh there was a lot but it was great i mean these these are pieces that i could give to anyone because they really seem to support like the the fandom it's like hey this is something that you should be aware of that's going on in comics and it was like oh this is this is great i could give this to anyone so thank you <laughs> well i'm a huge fan of darwin cook so that was a really difficult piece i mean it was his obituary so it was a really difficult piece to write but i sort of felt honored to be given the opportunity to do it and sort of like to sort of spread the word of his uh, work to non-comics fans. Yeah, along those lines, that was one of the things I wanted to ask. Do you consider yourself to be a bit of an ambassador for comic book fans when you're, when you're writing these articles? Because the audience for The Times is, generally speaking, not, not necessarily the same audience as a newsarama or a comic book resources. So you're, you know, you're spreading the word to people who might not be familiar with it. Do you kind of look at it? look at yourself in that way uh, a little bit when when I saw that question I think I, I kept pausing at the uh, at the word fans because I think I have a complicated relationship with fandom I mean just because I'm a fan so I always have to distance myself from uh, what I'm writing and I can never tell from uh, I guess social media and message boards whether when fans are enraged about something whether it reflects the true readership or just a really really vocal minority of people so uh it just always makes me curious like uh what the how to measure how people are reacting to comic book stuff like obviously there's there was a lot of um feedback is the wrong word a lot of reaction to uh the new black iron woman right uh character and that's what i kept pausing it's like you know is this a story or is it just really um vocal fans uh just making, I don't want to say a stink, just, just being uh, vocal. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I guess I kind of, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking about Comic-Con because, you know, you go to these panels and these screenings and stuff where they're showing a trailer for something and the fans go nuts with applause. It's, I've never been in a, not that I've been to so many conventions, but I've never been in a room where people are, are booing, for example. Sure. Yes, you have. Oh, oh well, wait, fact check, <laughs> fact check. <laughs> were there really booze though? There were, there were I if, if, you, um, <clears throat> if you stayed as late as I did, there were booze. I was one of them. <laughs> I guess, all right, fair enough. So um, yeah, that was actually something I, I 
I did want to bring up. So Mike and I attended the world premiere screening of Batman the Killing Joke. Oh, yeah. The animated movie uh, based on the very famous Alan Moore uh, Batman story. And the cartoon, I think it's it's out now. It's available for, for purchase so, so people can see it. And I'm sure a lot of people will have seen it by now. But there are basically two components to the adaptation. So the second half is a very faithful translation of the comic book to the screen. They mainly just added some action sequences, right? Otherwise, it's it's very, very faithful. The first half is essentially like a Batgirl mini-movie that they, and, and not to be disparaging, but kind of tacked on. And um, to what extent it really connects with Killing Joke as a whole for, for a cohesive full movie, I guess that's up for, for debate. Mike and I differ a little bit on it. Uh, it. It worked for me, more or less. I know you were, you were less keen on it. I, you and I discussed it. Uh, a great deal afterwards and I think you said it perfectly when you said that you didn't necessarily not see what I was talking about but you still enjoyed the viewing experience right. uh, and I've definitely been there myself I guess for me it was more I couldn't separate the two and then what happened when what happened happened with the bleeding core reporter it just it soured the experience for me hmm. yeah so you know the i guess the really controversial aspect of batman killing joke uh have you, have you seen it yet george no but i've read about it so you're not spoiling anything okay so there is a sex scene between batman and batgirl in the first half of the movie that right. little batgirl prologue that i was mentioning and uh news and actually footage of it leaked even before the screening so we kind of went in knowing about it and i will admit when i saw the the leaked footage it was a little off-putting. There was a little bit of like an ick factor, yeah. but watching it in the context of the movie, you know, I, I really didn't have any objections to it. I felt like it kind of tracked with with the story that they were telling. But uh, things got a little hairy during the Q and A session, and I guess I would kind of turn it to you, Mike, because you, I feel like, were a little bit more front and center with it, even though you might have been sitting behind me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, uh, I was I was not involved. If you are listening to this for the for the first time or rather you haven't been exposed to this, neither Anthony nor I are the, ble- are the bleeding group, bleeding cool reporter who got involved with this. That was uh, our colleague, Jeremy Conrad. Um, so during the, the Q&A, which happened after the panel and after the screening. So none of the voice cast was there. Kevin Conroy did not stick around. A bunch of people did not stick around. It was uh, the writer of the film, Brian Azzarello. Um, I believe it was the director and one of the producers, but I, I would have to check that. Yeah, it was Sam Liu, the yeah. director, and Bruce Tim, the producer. Okay. So the Q&A went very well for everyone except for the, the, last, uh, the last person who was actually cosplaying as Joker in a, in a great costume. Um, and they asked, they asked something about the more controversial nature of the movie. Um, and I guess the answer that the panelists gave was not what they wanted, or at least not what Jeremy wanted, who was sitting in the audience. Um, and there was some back and forth between them and 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 mostly Brian Azarello at that point. And again, if you Google this, you can see what went on, and, and there's plenty of coverage of, of Bleeding Cool about what happened. But it basically, you know, the fans at that point who were still hanging around for that, who I imagine many of them were journalists, didn't seem to be very happy. Uh, hmm. And I know that the that at that point it kind of solidified in my mind, like, all right, this is I'm not going to buy this when I get home. <laughs> this is not something I want in my collection. Um, 
but yeah, it was, it was, it was weird. It was one of those things where only at Comic-Con, I mean, this panel, the whole night started great. It was one of those experiences where, you know, Kevin Conroy comes out on screen, uh, on stage, everyone is standing, everyone's clapping. Kevin was, you know, the voice of Batman who goes, you know, I love you all too. Like there, there was just, hmm. it was really great to be there. Everyone was passionate. Um, Mark Hamill called in and did a Joker bit, and the whole night was great. And then it just, I don't know, it never got quite up to that level again. So, I mean, if you want to know more about what happened, Google it, go to Bleeding Cool. But it was just, it didn't didn't end well. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in the, in the lead up to that, I was thinking more of the reactions during the screening where, you know, when that scene in particular played out, people were... We're cheering. They were. They were cheering. You yeah. know, but I yes, heard, it definitely oh, wow. took a little bit of a turn. Huh. Uh, yeah, I heard people. I heard people around me who were were into it. They were. They were saying this. This was a scene that I don't. Know, I wouldn't necessarily say that they said it made sense, but they were enjoying it. And then it's important to note because now we're kind of talking about the fan community. The room we were watching it in is very large. It was ballroom twenty. It held a couple of thousand people. Most of those people did seem very happy with what was going on as far as the reaction. Again, I didn't talk right. to many people around me, sure. but it's it's important to note that when we got to the Q&A that we were speaking of, most of those people had gone. This yes. was not the same group. Like sure. Most of those people had left, so it was a much smaller group. Again, I have to imagine it was mostly journalists and stuff because we would all stick around to see what the Q&A was about, so I, that might be important too. Yeah. Well, it's... You know, it's you mean, you mentioned, you know, fans asking questions. And as I was sitting there, it was kind of frustrating. I would have expected that the first question would have been about that Batman Batgirl scene. Sure. And again, nobody asked about it until the very, I mean, it was the last question. The very last one. If they had cut it off one sooner, I would have been a completely different story. You know, and, and again, yeah, I mean, the people who were asking questions, I don't know if they they were journalists or, or they were more fans. I don't know, but... It, they seemed happy with the work product. They were mostly asking yeah. about, you know, they were mostly asking about what was coming next, right. what were other projects that people were going to work on. And again, this is close to midnight, so I don't remember all the details. But, um, you know, these were not people who seemed generally upset with it. I mean, I wouldn't assume to speak for any of them, but from what they were saying, no one seemed that outraged i guess would be the word and then the last person who again was very respectful as far as i could tell yeah just asked about i think what everyone was thinking and then it just got very heated past that yeah it was just again i guess if i had any frustration it's that even if you liked the development in the movie it's like i, I still feel like it bears asking about you know because it was a, a bit of a departure uh certainly you know from the you know, from the comic book, but, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting, you know, experience. Um, and yeah, like you said, if people want to know a little bit more about uh, what went on there, uh, it, it was covered on bleeding cool and picked up by a number of other outlets as yeah. well. The next day over coffee, we were all kind of, you know, Googling it and, and sending each other everything and there were reactions and, you know, it's probably not the biggest story to come out of it, but, you know, considering the nature of both the original comic book and the changes made to the adaption and the whole thing just, it's very, it's very strange. <laughs> like the story from beginning to end is a very strange story. <laughs> but going back to what you were saying, George, uh, yeah, I, I do wonder that as well. When you do see these very vocal, you know, perhaps minorities on the internet talking about, you know, some of these things. And you do wonder if that really is representative of the way the fandom feels generally. Or if, again, it really is just a, a, a small but, but vocal group. Um, but that actually was one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you as far as articles that you've written, you know, what, what sort of feedback do you get? And do you get feedback from the initiated, the comic book fans or from people who are kind of outside of that world or, or a mix? 
Uh, I think it's it's definitely a mix. Uh, I think comic fans uh, tend to write in if they think I've made an error in something and they want to point it out. So I'm sometimes very, very happy when I get that and I can say, no, you're wrong. Ah. Uh, I'm very careful with these things. You know, occasionally I make mistakes for sure, but it's usually not about like a comic book fact that I can, um, that I can, uh, that I know and that I can easily verify. But um, I think that, I mean, just judging by the traffic, uh, that when there are big things like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates writing the Black Panther, I mean, that's probably a, an article of mine that was like the most viewed ever. Uh, so I think there is, a, there is an audience for that stuff at the Times. So they want to know like when the, this huge writer is writing uh, a significant Marvel character, people will pay attention to that. Right. So there I'm just judging by traffic, not by any like letters to the editor saying, oh, this is great. Gotcha. So you mentioned how, you know, when you started, you, you, know, you weren't out of the closet as a, as a comic book fan. And certainly, you know, things have changed <laughs> so much. And <laughs> I think about my own experiences. And you know, I've mentioned this before on the show, but, you know, growing up, my, my parents weren't huge fans of me reading comic books. They felt that it would take away from my schoolwork. And it was only by the time I was in high school and I had consistently performed well in school that they figured, oh, okay, I guess the comic books aren't so bad after all. But even then, uh, I remember one of my high school English classes, one of our assignments was to write what would eventually become our personal statement for our college applications. And what I originally wrote was about how I got into comic books by uh, seeing the, the Death of Superman uh, display at the... Uh, Heroes World comic book store in, in White Plains. I've sp- spoken about this on the show a number of times, but that was what I wrote about for that for that essay. And I remember showing it to my parents, and they didn't think that that was acceptable to submit for the assignment or for a college application. Huh. And you know, I mean, I took their advice to heart, and I ended up writing something else that my heart wasn't really in. And I submitted it, and I got uh, I didn't get a bad grade. It was a ninety three, I think. He but thinks. He knows for sure. It was a 93. <laughs> it was a 93. It was a 93. <laughs> yeah, no, he knows exactly. He does this all the time. So yeah. Anthony, we, we know you know everything about what you're talking about. So I got a 93. And um, again, I didn't get, it wasn't like I got horrible feedback from it. But, you know, it certainly wasn't the reaction or the, or the grade that I was hoping for. And I remember talking to the teacher after and, and showing him the original piece. And his response was that that's what I should have submitted. And it was great to have that. I went right home with that. I was like, you know what Mr. Kavanaugh said? He said I should have talked about comic books. And so from that point on, I think I got a little bit more comfortable. And I felt that, you know, this is something that I, that I care about. And I think being able to convey that passion is what's most important. And if I can write about it in a way that's intelligent and engaging, you know, that would carry more weight, you know, than anything else. And sure. that there's nothing wrong with, with writing about comic books. And so I continued to do that. And then uh, I went to Fordham for college, and I majored in technically communication and media studies, but I I say journalism, because those were most of the classes that I took. And there was one professor, a great professor, who I had for a number of classes, and I wrote about comic books and specifically alternate realities, you know, pretty much any time I had the opportunity to, and it got to the point where she assigned one of the writing pieces, and she said to me, all right, Anthony, like, no comic shop this time. (laughs) And I was like, okay, and (laughs) so I wrote about something else, but... It's always something that I've, you know, I've been passionate about, about 
is that is this during the period of time where you wrote the Firefly paper? That is my personally my favorite paper of yours that you've ever lent me. Yes, that was for that was for a different class, that was but for a different yeah. Class? Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't just those journalism classes. I <laughs> I took a media law class and I wrote about the battle over the Superman copyright. Nice. Uh, I took a PR class and I wrote about how the brown coats, the firefly yes, flans, right. are basic flans. Did I say flans? You did I, say flans. Yes. I did that in, in college, too, when I was talking about the project. I can't. Firefly. It's okay. Firefly you, fans. You still can't take the sky from us. That's right. But I wrote, a, I wrote a whole paper about how the brown coats were essentially an unofficial you know, PR machine for Firefly and for Joss Whedon. So, again, it's something that's, you know, I've been very passionate about, and I've, I've written about it any, any chance I get. Uh, George, have you had any similar instance? Where, and I, this is something that I, I really do want to get into, sort of the, the pitch and approval process sure. for, for getting these stories out there. Have, has there ever been a point where they're like, all right, like enough, enough with the comic book stuff? Uh, unfortunately, yes. I mean, it's, it's funny because uh, like if, if, a, if, if a, an article about a film came out, like an actor or whatever, anything related to a film and uh, an editor heard about it, I don't think they would ever say, oh, like, we've covered enough film this week. It's like, no, it's just a different story right. and it's a different aspect. But there are times when um, I've, like, my byline has been in the paper, like, three or four times in the same section. And then I get a fifth story that I think is actually pretty good. But I sort of hesitate and think, because it's happened before where the editor thinks, well, we've covered comics already. It's like, N yes, we have, but it's a different topic entirely. Uh, so I, I have had that reaction. And... Uh, it just makes me more creative in how I pitch. Uh, my The art section is usually the main section uh, that I uh, pitch my stories to, but uh, Monday Business uh, has a lot of media stories, um, so I can sometimes get comic stuff in there. I've written for style. I've written. I've basically written for every section of the paper, uh, basically the way you did approach college. It's like I will find a way to find a comic book story for this section of the paper. Yeah. And what... So... So what is the, the pitch process like? I know from the Comixology episode, because they, they did get into that a little bit, and you know I know that as, as far as how people pitch stories to you, oftentimes, now that you, you're known for writing a lot of these stories, the sure. comic book companies will, will come to you. So I guess I'm curious, what, what do they typically present to you, and then how do you present that to your, your editors? Sure. I mean, obviously, it's a mix of things. Uh, I get pitched a lot by the comic companies or their publicists, sometimes by individual creators. Uh, so it's a lot to sift through. Uh, or some kid with a podcast. Or, like, <laughs> or, or some kid with a podcast. Can you write a story? Uh, I don't think, and I hope this doesn't come across as like, uh, well, I can't think of what word I want, but like, I don't think I did this to you. But sometimes when I get a pitch, I'll say, here are the three questions I have to ask myself when I'm sending a pitch to my editor. It's like, why are we writing about this today? Are you doing something different than any other comic book company? Or, you know, uh, yeah, comic book company is fine. Uh, and three, um, would this be of interest to the general audience of the New York Times? Because there are certain stories that uh, will appeal only to comic book fans, and I'm one of them. So I'll get really excited when they pitch me a story. And, but then three minutes later, I'm thinking, I can't write this for the Times. So uh, those are sort of my three guiding principles. And if, if any one of those uh, works, then I can figure out an angle to try to get it into the paper. Interesting. And you mentioned also on that Comicsology episode and, and along those lines, you know, how part of your job is to spot the difference between a Times 
story versus a newsarama or a comic book resource sure. story. Those are sites that are devoted solely to, to comic books and they cover everything. They, you know, changes in creative teams, reviews, previews, sneak peeks, things like that. Uh, so sort of what, I mean, are those the, the questions that you would be asking to distinguish between the two? Is there anything else that would set them apart? Sure. It's definitely things like that. I mean, uh, believe me, I don't want to come through. I wanted to come across as if I'm complaining. It's like, I love hearing all these pitches because if I get pitched three similar things, that could be a bigger story together than any one of them individually. But I was pitched once a, uh, a comic book was being relaunched. Uh, they were pitching me the creative team and then I read it and it's like, it's the same creative team. So it's like, there's no story here. And uh, like, no, I, I can't, I can't write that. Um, there was, they were killing off some other dimensional version of another character. And it's like, I can't do that either. It's like, I, it would take so long to explain the difference between these two characters so that my editors would just say, forget it. Right. And have you gotten to the point now where, you know, you're really able to, you know, to make that call on your own before going to, to an editor? Or are there still things that, you know, you think, oh, they're going to go for this and then not so much? Yeah, it happens all the time. I mean, uh, there, are some, there are certain stories that I think are definite stories uh, I'll get the green light on. Uh, and there are some where I, again, I feel passionate. It's like, I really want to write this, so I will pitch it just in case. You know, it's a slow news day. Maybe they'll say yes. Uh, so every so often, a couple of those stories, or even stories where I feel like I'm, the publicist is being really persistent. I want a second opinion on this. I'll send it to my editor, uh, and sometimes I'm shocked. They'll say, oh, yeah, you should do that. And it's like, okay, great. Um, so I'm not sure if that answered your question. It's like it's, <laughs> it's hit or miss. Right. And what is the actual procedure for it? I mean, is it just shooting off an email? Do you have meetings? How does, how does that typically work? Uh, yeah, it's usually, it's usually an email. Um, I, I have an editor who I uh, pitch most, clo most frequently in the art section, and then, like I said, depending on the story, uh, I'll pitch the sports editor, the, the style editor, the business editor. It's, uh, I'm not shy about trying to get coverage into the paper. Right. Are there specific things that you've noticed they really do respond to and, and will typically jump on? Uh, the, I, I talked about this on Comixology. The Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, story is actually kind of embarrassing because I didn't really know how huge a writer he was. I definitely know it now. Uh, so Marvel offered me that and I thought, I sent it to my editor saying, no, oh, I can write a brief about this, which would be like 200 words. Uh, and they basically responded, you're an idiot. This is a story, <laughs> like write it. And I got like 800 words and it became one of my most popular stories. So it, I'm definitely really thankful to have editors who are way smarter than me to help like direct my coverage because they'll, they'll miss something that I, I just, I can't see because I'm like too in the weeds. Right. Well, on that note, you, you know, you you mentioned on on Comicsology as well. It's I I, <laughs> I really went through that Comicsology episode because it's funny. I, I didn't realize you were going to be on there, and then I saw it, it was posted, and it was not too long ago. It was after we had set this up, and I was like, oh no! Like, what if he talked about everything that I wanted to, <laughs> to talk about? But uh, you know, fortunately, I think we have some you know some different angles to explore. But one of the things that you talked about was you know striking a balance between providing definitions and context for the non-comic book readers while at the same time sort of staying true to your own fandom how do you strike that balance that's that's a struggle with every piece because it depends on at that point it depends on the copy editor that i have it goes through several levels like i write it my editor uh takes their first pass then it goes to a copy editor for style grammar 
and you know they'll have questions uh, also uh, and some of them depending on how familiar they are with comics will start to push me it's like well like what does this mean like what does this mean like you know uh, I was arguing with one of them last week about like just call it a panel and you were fine just it's a panel <laughs> uh, so it varies and it just depends on like how much time I have and uh whether I can convince the copy editor that it's like, you can let me have this one. It's, it's not going to be wrong. And the comics community will not crucify me for uh, not defining that. Right. So I told a little story about my, you know, high school and, and undergraduate journalism experience and, and kind of, I guess at a certain point being known as, as the comic book guy. Uh, do you have that similar reputation at the paper and is that ever do you ever feel limited in in any way by that uh i i do have that reputation no my only problem has been when they think that uh being a fan of comics means that you're a fan of everything geeky like video (laughs) video games or whatever else because they've asked me to write video game stories and like i have no clue it's like i couldn't begin to i'm just not involved in that area so i i wouldn't be able to do it justice so, and again, this is, uh, I pitch all my stories, so they, it's, it's really easy to manage because unless I'm pitching it, I'm, I don't have to do it. So if there's a story I'm not interested in, I don't have to write it. So I can just beg off and say, I'm too busy with my day job to do something. Right. I kind of get the same thing at, I work in a law school admissions office, but, uh, yeah, anything that's at all related to, as you said, the, you know, the geek world I get asked about. So Pokemon Go is a huge yes, thing right now. Yes, and it was kind of assumed that I play that. Example. And it's like, exactly. nope, no interest in that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with people who play that. But it's like, that's not my thing. Well, that's not true. If they're, if they're blocking the lane when I'm trying to get to a panel in Comic-Con, then, you know, move off to the side to catch your, your little Pokemon. Yeah. <laughs> please, please. What about, Mike, you're, you're an accountant. What, what's it like for you at work? Are you, are you quote unquote, out as a comic book fan? Do they... Do they make similar assumptions about you? Um, yeah, I, I've definitely been known as, as the comic guy at any place that I've worked. Um, I, I do not have anything displayed in my office. I'm, I'm actually a little, little jealous of you. That's just a personal thing. I, like to, I don't know. I never never had the, the interest in putting that stuff up, probably because I'd mostly be worried about it getting damaged or something. Um, but yeah, I, I get the same, like, oh, hey, Pokemon's a thing now, right? Is that something you're into? And I kind of have to shy away. But, you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm into everything. And, and if I'm not, someone I know is. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. But but yeah, I've, I've had some experiences to what you two are describing. Yeah. And George, I would imagine that being a comic book fan, you know, it certainly gives you a different perspective. And I would feel that when you're interviewing comic book creators and other industry professionals, that they would probably respond better to you because you kind of speak the same language. Have you found that to be the case? They're usually uh, surprised and sometimes thankful that like they're speaking to a fan. So there is a shorthand. And it's just like, yeah, I get it. It's like you don't have to like explain that part of it. Um, yeah, so it's definitely helpful. And again, as a fan, like sometimes for the first 20 minutes of the interview, I'll, I'll ask the questions I have to ask. But as soon as the interview is over, it's just like, oh, my God, I, I can't believe I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> it's like, thank you. What are some of the most memorable interviews or, or other interactions that you've had with, with the comic book uh, I think creators? I, I always go back to, uh, well, actually, I'll give you a good one and a bad one. I won't name the bad one. Sure. But uh, the good one, uh, very early on, I think my second piece, my first reported piece, 
Uh, I spoke to Paul Levitz about uh, the gay bashing storyline in Green Lantern. Right. And I'm a huge Legion fan, so that's exactly what happens. Like, 20 minutes, interview was over. I think I did this one in person. It was like, Paul, I just have to say, the Legion of Superheroes, like, I loved, like, every, every, every issue that you did. Uh, and he was super nice about it. He uh, autographed uh, a collected edition for me, and it was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in heaven right now. Uh, there was another creator when I was doing, well, I should be careful because I don't want you to be able to figure out who he is. I was, I was writing a comic book. Uh, I was writing an article about comic, obviously. Um, and I had to reach out. To, I tried to reach out to him uh, because of a change they were making to this character. Is that vague enough? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I stupidly, uh, I just misphrased a question about the person's costume. And they crucified me. They did not respond to me. But then on their message board, they were they wrote a post like, "Listen to this idiot reporter's question." Uh, and it was like that's so unnecessary. I, I was I was just surprised at the uh, the amount of anger and uh, the rush to judgment that that generated. Yeah, that seems like a bit of overkill. I feel yeah, uh, especially when it's an opportunity to spread the word about your work. You know, you would, right. would think that it would, you know, be something that they could overlook. I think that creator is known to be prickly, which I didn't know at the time. So I definitely would not have sent a casual email. I would have thought it through a little bit more before hitting send. Well, speaking of maybe not of prickly creators, but uh, sort of along those lines, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, we have this opportunity, we're talking to you. You know, Mike, we just had our experience as, as journalists of some sort, sure. you know, at Comic-Con. <laughs> And so, George, I wanted to get your take on kind of what comics journalism is or, or kind of should be. And what I wanted to talk about specifically has to deal with, uh, with Bleeding Cool, um, which, again, is the site that my, Mike and I wrote for. So there was recently a little bit of a kerfuffle, uh, mostly on Twitter, between Rich Johnston, who, who runs Bleeding Cool, and Dan Slott, the writer of Amazing Spider-Man and a number of other books. And specifically, it had to do with, with spoilers. So as I mentioned at the top, you know, Bleeding Cool's news slash gossip site. And as I've come to learn, you know, people within the industry, creators, editors and whatnot, you know, tend to have strong feelings one way or the other for Bleeding Cool. Bleeding Cool, I think, has a certain reputation. I mean, what, Mike, what would you perhaps describe that reputation to be? I would say that there have been times where I have been told that maybe don't speak to a particular creator because of their feelings on, on, on the site. Um, but I've also been around when everyone's very happy to see us. I think if I could kind of summarize Bleeding Cool's reputation, it's more the unknown because I had one, one pro tell me at Comic-Con, you never know where an interview with Bleeding Cool is going to go. You don't know if they're digging for something or you don't know if it's just coverage. Hmm. Um, but, you know, we had a very nice, Anthony, I don't know if you were around for this, but we actually had a very nice experience at San Diego where a creator who was not well-known came up to the group. Uh, we were de debriefing from the day, and he made a point of, of thanking us just in general for coverage we had given him. He handed up business cards, and, and the entire thing seemed seemed very genuine, so that was that was very nice. But at the same time, we will occasionally get messages, especially after the, the dance slot thing, which you know, neither Anthony or I were involved with, right. that was saying, you know, maybe don't go up and interview Dan Slott if you're, you know, trying to do a story for the site. It might, it might not go over well. But, you know, it wasn't, we try to be 
non-antagonistic. Like that's a big thing that Rich pushes is we, we don't want to start the fight, but if we find ourselves in one, then, you know, what happens happens. But you know, there was, there was no real, as far as I could tell, real intent to exacerbate the, the situation. So, right. So the situation that I was referring to, uh, and again, this is just an example. Um, I'm not so much concerned with this particular instance, but just to kind of you know illustrate the the debate, I suppose. So recently, Bleeding Cool posted spoilers from an upcoming Marvel title. It might have been one of Slot's books, or it might have been uh, a different Marvel title. I'm, I'm not even entirely sure. But um, Slot went on Twitter, and he was talking about how you know he's he's opposed to those kind of, of spoilers. He said he doesn't like spoilers in general, but especially when they're they're done in a way where he feels uh, blindsided because someone had said, well, you know, how can you be upset with Bleeding Cool for posting spoilers when there are all these, you know, other stories that, you know, Marvel sanctions that reveal what's going to happen in an upcoming book. And so Slot's argument was, was essentially this, if, if I can summarize it, when it's a Marvel sanctioned press placement, it's part of a planned launch, the creators have notice, and it's designed to bring in people who are not who are potentially not already comic book readers, bring in new people to the industry. Sure. And that when Bleeding Cool or another site runs a spoiler, that it's it does blindside creators, that um, you know, it just kinda, you know, takes it out of that that planned launch and they don't have the control, they don't have the notice, that it is designed more to further the agenda of the site, you know, to drive traffic. Um, and that it's directed at the already initiated the people who are already likely to buy these books anyway, and maybe now they might not buy these books because they know what's going to happen. So that that those seem to be the arguments that he was making. Uh, one thing that uh, Rich Johnston pointed out in response, and, and I do agree with, with this aspect in particular, um, you know, when Bleeding Cool runs a spoiler, they do give you ample spoiler warning. Right. Uh, I mean, you really have to want to know what that spoiler is to find it. It's not given away in the headline. And even when you click on the article, you usually have to scroll down a bit in order to see it. Sure. On the other hand, you know, I had Zach Walliner on the show for the last episode. Uh, this didn't make it into the final cut, but he talked about how there was a death in uh, Civil War II that was spoiled for him when he went to check his email on Yahoo. It was, you know, one of the Yahoo stories. And then I don't think it was in the headline, but there were, you know, maybe three lines from the article right underneath it. Right, right. And it said who, who it was who died. So there's a case, this poor guy, he's just trying to check his email, and he sees a spoiler. Whereas, again, at least on Bleeding Cool and certain other sites, you, you do have to really seek it out in order to, to find it. But I guess, you know, just generally speaking, and specifically with respect to spoilers, I mean, what are your thoughts on that and on what comics journalism should be? Uh, I mean, the spoilers thing is sort of interesting to me because I watch Game of Thrones, and there are people who get really angry on Sunday night if, like, they're going if, if they read a post about the episode before they've seen it i mean to me that's like don't get on social media if, until you've seen the ep episode like you know you have to control yourself a little bit because it, it'll it'll happen inadvertently where someone just happens to say something related to that episode and then you'll see it accidentally so um like i, I don't understand that part of it it's just like i know i have the potential of getting things spoiled if i log on to facebook like before i've seen something um I also read Bleeding Cool daily, so like I don't mind spoilers, and I sort of I, I read it to know uh, what's going on in, in case there's a story that I could possibly cover. So I'm probably like the wrong uh, audience for this stuff because I don't mind it. It's like I try to absorb everything uh, just so just so I can have a, a big picture of uh, what's going on in comics. 
um, I mean, I, I sort of get what he's saying. Like, uh, it's tough because I've, I've been criticized for this as well for having a story in Wednesday's paper when the issue is about to go on sale and I've already talked about what's going to be in there. Um, but, you know, it's news on that day. On Thursday, it's not. So it's hard to, to balance that. And, you know, I love breaking news, so I don't think I'm going to step away from that anytime soon. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that maybe that's my next question, because, you know, I will admit as a fan myself, you know, there have been plenty of times where the, you know, pretty much DC or Marvel, they have spoiled, a, you know, a big development in, in their comics. Again, they want to get people into the comic shops, which I think ultimately is a good thing for the stores, for the industry. But as a fan, you know, it can be kind of frustrating when I just want to go on Wednesday and pick up the book and find out what happens then. You are both a fan... And someone who who writes for the paper. So, I mean, are, are there ever sort of competing interests with <laughs> internally? Oh, for sure, for sure. But I mean, I, I'll also I'll always give in to. Well, I, it's hard to separate the two. I'm not sure which one I'm giving into. Uh, I got a copy of uh, Rebirth uh, a week before it came out, and I mean, I shouldn't say this here, but I, I took time out from from my my day job uh, and just read the comic for a half hour, and it's just like. And I loved it. I mean, it, it was amazing. But then when I tweeted about it, and I think in my piece about it, I tried to avoid spoiling it. And I suggested that people read it without looking at the coverage, because I think the story is much more powerful that way. I feel the same way about the Killing Joke movie. I wish I hadn't seen the leaked scene, and that I could go into the movie not knowing that that scene was going to be part of it, and then I could decide for myself what I felt about it. But now it's, it's colored uh, in a way that like, I'm, I won't be able to trust my opinion once I see the movie. I, I actually feel the same way because that day before the screening occurred, I wasn't reading anything online because we were too busy at the convention. So right. I was only told about the leaked footage and the, the added scenes by other people out there. And I kind of feel the same way. Like I would have had a completely different reaction if I didn't have people telling me about it and telling me their reaction to it and telling me how they felt about it. Not that I'm incapable of making my own opinion, but it's one thing to be kind of surprised. Right. Um, and it's another thing to be like, oh, okay, this 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 is a thing before you even see what it's part of. So I, I agree with you. Do you f feel similarly with respect to the comic books and those stories that come out ahead of time? Yeah, I'm, I got to be honest with you. I'm not. I'm not one of those people that gets hung up on the spoilers. Like okay. I, you know, I, I go every week, but I'm not. I don't know. I, I kind of moved on past like the big events. I mean, I remember when they happened. I remember Captain America dying and Superman dying, and all these other things. And it's like, I don't know. At the end of the day, the ones that I go back and I reread over and over again are the ones with good stories, you know. And it's just spoilers. They seem like part of the marketing at this point, so they don't tend to draw me in now. On the flip side of that, you one of you mentioned Game of Thrones. I was a big follower, am a big follower of the Flash show. And when that final episode aired, I made sure to watch it live. Like I modified work schedule and um, and and gym and anything else I had going on because I wanted to be in front of the TV. Because as soon as that was over, I knew everyone in the world was going to be talking about what happened, and it did have a big surprise ending. So I I do feel for spoilers that way. I guess I'm just not in, as engaged with the the week to week superhero comics as I once was. Yeah, I think for me it comes into play more as you know we're talking about Flash, Game of Thrones, more with television shows. I have to say, for the most part, I feel like the people I interact with on social media are, are pretty good about it. But you know, I, I check a lot of the TV news sites daily. Uh, I mean, <laughs> multiple times per day. Um, and I've gotten to the point where 
I'm not I'm so savvy, but you know, you can kind of tell <laughs> just from headlines and the image that they'll use. And especially when you see stories on multiple sites, you can kind of like they're they are good about not spoiling it outright. But sure. again, if you see enough of the headlines, you can kind of piece it together. So yeah, I've I've done that with a number of shows as well, especially yeah. finales and things like that. Like yeah. you know you. But you you know I mean again, there's a bit of personal responsibility on that. I mean you mentioned about Game of Thrones. If you're not going to watch the show, then maybe don't go on Facebook immediately after. <laughs> it's right. Like right. give give yourself some time. It's like if you if you think it might be a big event, then you know maybe try to watch it or try to avoid things. It's like I don't necessarily always relate to people when they're mad about spoilers. Zach is a perfect example of that. But it's like... But yeah, what was so... <laughs> it's our mutual friend. I was rolling my eyes the entire time you said that because it was like, it was like, guy, you're always going to find someone who spoiled something for you and it's always you're the one who's complaining about it. So. <laughs> but what would you... I mean, what would you... How would you respond directly to Zach about it? You know, I'm going to check my email and I see the headline there. What would... Like, he didn't know that Yahoo was going to be covering that that day yeah i mean okay just playing devil's advocate sure sure i i guess that's not the way you want to find out about a particular plot point but then my next question would be like well who cares like were you were you (laughs) buying this book every month and you were really waiting for it was was it the day after did the book already come out like i just i don't know enough factors about why that made him so annoyed I, i don't know that i've ever been in that position so i don't know it's just it's tough for me to get animated about that stuff but i understand that people do so i don't know i guess i'm looking in from the outside right and that's only like the launching off point like whether it's a death or whatever it's like you know they're not going to stay dead so it's just like it's just they're telling a new story this is the new chapter it's like there's like people got worked up over captain america being a hydra agent it's like why are you guys going so crazy you know this is going to change in like a year we're waiting until his next movie comes out. I'm sure he'll be back to normal. It didn't or, even take that long. Or the, or the next <laughs> issue. Or the next issue. By the way, uh, Nick Spencer, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, was nice enough to go onto the Word Balloon podcast and detail all of the issues. And basically, the next issue came out not long after the interview aired, and it answered most of the questions. So it was one of those situations where the the reaction to the story became the story, right. I feel like. so. He didn't call it brainwashing, though, but I think it's essentially brainwashing. I know it's like an alternate whatever, but it's like, come on, he's brainwashed. Right. No, that's. Oh, I mean, you mean in the you mean in the story in itself? the story itself. Oh. I mean, I, I know it's a cosmic cube or whatever. But it's you like, you said brainwashing, and immediately my brain went is is Nick Spencer is Nick, saying oh, yeah, that no, we no. the fans no, or, no, no, or no, any sure. any fan who was outraged is brainwashed by this right. kind of marketing machine? My apologies. Machine. I meant Steve Rogers, <laughs> a Hydra agent. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I actually, I haven't read the arc. I, I hate to say it, but I'm one of those people who, who trade weights. So I'm actually waiting until the, the thing wraps. And I, I cannot wait to get my hands on it. But yeah, from, from what I could tell from, from speaking with people, the, the outrage was unnecessary. But then I kind of look at the business side of it and say, well, yeah, but you sold that book. You let everyone talk about whatever they wanted. And I'd love to see the numbers on the second issue or on the reorder if there was one. So, yeah. George, this might be more of a question uh for you know the business side of, of the actual companies or for retailers, but uh, again, with a lot of these stories that are designed to bring in new comic book readers, uh, I mean, do do you or does the paper get any sort of insight into whether or not it worked? Uh, no, I mean, no, no direct insight. Uh, obviously, I read the sale the sales numbers every month. I'm sort of oddly obsessed with them, so I sort of see um, what kind of impact some of those big events have had. I mean, Black Panther, huge sales for number one. More important, two and three were really high. So I think that shows that some people are interested in it. 
But then there's those weird things like the President Obama Spider-Man cover. I mean, right. that was like half a million copies, but they didn't come back to Spider-Man the next month. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, they're gimmicks sometimes. Right. I suppose my last question on this note of the nature of comics journalism, are there any types of stories that you would like to see more of, whether it's on those more dedicated comic book sites or at the times whether you are writing them or, or someone else is writing them is there anything any direction that you would want or hope to see comics journalism go in oh, this is purely self-serving but I, like i i want a well, maybe not weekly because that might be too much of a time commitment like a monthly comic where I, a column where i can just catch up on like the issues that have come up in the last month because sometimes there are small stories that uh don't warrant coverage in the times but I, I feel should be noted somehow. So it would be nice to have a regular space to sort of like, here's here's like the four or five things that happen that people should be aware of. Any other stories, either past or present or future, that uh, you know you really stand out to you? It's always it's always odd things that make them remarkable to me. Uh, I wrote a story about time to Iceman coming out of the closet. Uh, which style, this was in Thursday style, they gave me really good space for, but the, the odd reason I'm proud of that is because the editor doesn't really like comics, but I've known him for a while. He told me, it's like, you should write this story. And it's like, sure. It's like, this is crazy that you're asking me to do this, but yeah, I'll do it. And again, good space. We did a video for it. Uh, and it was just fun to interview a lot of people who I hadn't spoken to before. How do you typically conduct your interviews, especially now with DC being on the West Coast? Is it mostly phone and email, or do you? Uh, it's almost always phone. I like to I like to hear the person so I can get like uh, the tone of what they're saying. Right. Uh, email I'll do as a last resort, but it's like and occasionally if they happen to be in town I'll do it in person. But uh, I I type really really fast when I'm talking on the phone. So, but I take it you've been to have you been to the various like DC and Marvel offices? I haven't been to Marvel's new offices yet. Uh, and as you saw on Facebook, I was at uh, in San Diego and I got to see DC's new offices and I was blown away. I could have spent like a week there just roaming the halls. I mean, it is really, really sweet. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever been to either, Mike? I went to a uh, tour in the early 90s to the Marvel office at the time when I was a little kid. But that's, that's the extent of it. Yeah. Well, our mutual friend and one of the former owners of Alternate Realities and someone you've spoken to, uh, Brandon Montclair, he, you know, he was an assistant oh, editor yeah, sure. at DC for a while. And I know some of the guys got to go and, and see the offices. Uh, I, I did not. And then now he's not there anymore. So I kind of and DC's not there anymore. He's so <laughs> kind of missed the opportunity. But uh, I'd imagine that'd be pretty cool to get to see that. The new, the new space in uh, in San Diego is, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, Burbank is amazing. It's like it's much better than their offices here. Is, is there is there an actual like bullpen, or is most of the work done remotely? Or I, I think most of it is done remotely. What, what, what I saw a lot of was like editors' offices and like uh, the PR offices, uh, the toy department. That was my favorite mm, part. I got to see like nice. the DC direct people at work, and it's like wow. <laughs> yeah, that must be one of one of the cool things. Um, I mean, not just, you know, going to visit, but, you know, writing for the paper and getting to see things ahead of time, right? So how often do you get, uh, is it you just get advanced copies on things that you're, you're writing about, or do companies just send you stuff generally? Uh, it's, it's general. Um, and, like, for me, especially for pitching to the paper, uh, just the more lead time, the better, so that I have time to, like, find the right editor who will say yes. Um, but, yeah, sometimes I, I've read something that, like, I've had it for six months before it's due. I mean, that's more for trades, like the, the comic stuff. 
sometimes I'm lucky to get it like the week before it's supposed to come out. It's like, come on, guys. I can't write about this without it. Uh, turning back, I guess, one last time to our convention experience. Uh, so, I mean, did you enjoy, Mike, going and, and being able to, you know, report on panels and, and things like that? What was that experience like? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I very much enjoy working for, for Bleeding Cool. Um, it works a different set of muscles than going as a fan. Um, going as a fan year after year, I found myself getting less engaged. Um, it was getting busier and what have you. When you go there and you know you have to do certain things, have to be certain places, have to cover panels or do an interview or what have you it makes you look at that stuff closer and more critically and i ended up getting more out of it um i also you know just hanging around with these guys you never know who's going to show up just to talk or to see someone else or who they can introduce you to so i i absolutely loved it um as far as the panel coverage goes i really enjoyed being able to kind of shine a spotlight onto a couple of the things that I was interested in that maybe other people weren't like I went to a like a buckaroo bonsai reunion panel and it was one of those things where I know that if I had seen that headline on the site I would read it I don't know how many other people would so I was happy to sit in and and get the anecdotes and and it's almost just writing like a little oral history and 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 it was great the the other panel that I really enjoyed actually I should have mentioned this before you uh, you asked me what were some of the highlights. Um, Chris Delando was nice enough to introduce me to Jason Aaron, uh, and he had a spotlight panel that that weekend, which I covered. And he he talked about all his books, all of which I'm I'm very much enjoying. Um, and then he went on to win the Eisner. <laughs> so it was kind of a, a Jason Aaron weekend, and uh, I got to be a very very small part of that. So yeah, it was it was great. I, I can't wait for next year. Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to thank Rich Johnston at Bleeding Cool for the opportunity, and and for you, and and for Crystal Lando before you, you know, for kind of turning me on to it. It was, yeah, I, I agree. Nothing wrong with going to the convention just as a fan, but it was it was really cool to have a mission, you know, to have panels that I knew I had to cover. Uh, on a practical level, it was nice to have the press room, to have a place to go to sit <laughs> where there was Wi-Fi and snacks. Yeah, I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea when, when we say we had a press badge. We, we still had to wait on those lines, you know. Yes, there was the, no special access. Yeah, for the most part, we were not flashing a badge and getting in, in before you, uh, at least the, the panels I attended. And I was told that that would be a thing up front. So we, we did not have any special abilities that we could abuse or anything like that. You know, we waited on those lines with, with you know, if someone's listening who was in attendance. We were on those lines with you, so don't you know? Don't worry about that. Yeah, I mean, probably as far as coverage goes, one of my highlights was uh, I sat in on the Paul Dini uh, panel where he talked about his new original graphic novel, um, Dark Knight: A True Batman Story. It's his autobiographical tale about how he was severely beaten and mugged uh, over 20 years ago when he was working on Batman the Animated Series. And it's funny, I needed to pass the time on the plane, so I downloaded uh, one of his appearances on Kevin Smith's podcast, where he talked about the book, and then I was able to find a copy of the book at the convention, and I read it right before the panel, so I was really immersed in, in that story and everything, and it was, it was really interesting to hear him you know, talk about his experience, and then translating that experience to the comic book page. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of that article, I'm glad I got to cover it. So yeah, it was definitely you know, interesting to kind of have that you know, that perspective on everything. Speaking of perspective, I was complaining about the uh, the shipping prices for getting that uh, oh, yeah. that Superman home. 
the, I think the Dini panel was that day. So I was like pretty, pretty worked up over how much I had spent to ship this thing home. And then I went and I sat in on the panel and I'm hearing him tell this harrowing tale. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> the shipping price, not so bad. All things considered, could have been a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. From what I understand about the work, I haven't read it, but it, Dini went through some, some terrible things. So it certainly would put, put what we had to go through in perspective. Yeah, no, it was, it was a very powerful piece of work. Um, so again, I'm glad that I got to cover that. And, and yeah, I think just having that, uh, you know, that perspective on the convention was was really valuable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's different because you know you go as a fan and you don't necessarily make the connection to what goes into running this. But I mean, when when you're trying to cover the panels you you start to think about the people who are on it and the logistics that go in and i mean some of these people they're running back and forth from the building to all the off-site locations like this, is, this is an incredible amount of work um but they're also you know more often than not very willing to speak with you i mean as long as you know you're you're nice about it and you're respectful i mean i, I had no problem more this year than than last year last year being my first to just go up and um ask for clarification or questions or interviews and Every single person I spoke to, once once you know we were speaking and it clear I wasn't trying to do this vindictively, was so open and so nice, and it just kind of added to my appreciation as a fan because you know for the most part everyone that I've met doing this is great, and maybe maybe it's just because I, I had press and people are afraid of, of getting misquoted or whatever, but it was I don't know it, it heightened the entire experience and it just it made me appreciate that place more that community more and like I said I just can't wait to go back next year. Yeah. Though I enjoyed the experience, I think I'm good for like a, for a few <laughs> years. I, 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 maybe I would try to cover New York. Yeah, I was going to say, will you guys do New York? Well, this year I'm getting married the Comic Con weekend. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm going to have to leave. Uh, That's Saturday some poor scheduling there. Sorry, claims he didn't know. So I I, we really weren't thinking about that when we picked the date, and then very shortly thereafter we realized, and you know, a significant portion of our you know friends from alternate realities you know, are coming. And these are typically the people who would go to the convention. So I, I do feel a little bad. Everyone, at least to my face, has, has been a good sport about it. And I think within our group, um, people have, people are still into it and they still go, but I feel like people have maybe calmed a little bit where it's not like they need to be there all day, every day. So I think people are kind of able he, to, he's to looking, make it work. He's looking right at me <laughs> as he's saying this. I, I have gone to every New York Comic Con since the beginning. I'll be going this year. I want to be there all four days. You just never know what you're going to see. You never know what you're going to experience. You never know who you're going to be able to meet. Um, I've never covered his press, and I, I kind of maybe not necessarily interested in doing it because I've always been able to get through the door without it. And since it's kind of the home show, I like to have a little bit more free time, but I, I think maybe not this year, maybe in, in future years, it would definitely be something I'd be interested in because, you know, as I was saying before, if you look at it through, uh, through, you know, if you, if you just have to process it a different way, you might get more out of it. So I haven't, but I, I may sure. in the future. I guess one last note on the convention experience. Mike, I've been singing your praises to everybody. You were a fantastic roommate. This guy, now I thought I was neat and organized. This guy, he doesn't even unpack his suitcase. Everything stays in the suitcase the entire time. I, you know, I know where everything is and everything is, is, is segregated as need be, but I, you know, I, I don't like adding unnecessary steps to a process. So if I don't have to things out of my suitcase i don't necessarily have to put them back in um but yeah i mean you you were i've roomed with many people uh out there and and in conventions in general and and you were by far the the easiest to live with so thank you for that very nice yeah we got along well that worked it worked out well <laughs> you mentioned that 
you know, in, in the beginning it was a little harder to, to get the comic book stories approved and now there's been a little bit of shift bit of a shift to the point where now you have some competition among your colleagues as far as who's gonna be covering what. What has that experience been like? And do you do you pull rank? Are you like, hey, I was the guy doing this first. Like, you get <laughs> no. the next one. I wish I had that power. No, I mean, it's it just means that sometimes I'm surprised when I see uh, comics-related articles in the paper that are not mine. Uh, my husband actually tends to point them out first, even though he doesn't realize how much it kills me to hear that. <laughs> He'll be reading out in the app. It's like, oh, this isn't by you. It's like, great, thanks, good night. <laughs> Uh, so there was a piece about the killing joke, uh, I think it may be in Arts and Leisure, uh, that a freelancer, uh, wrote. Uh, it also tells me that, like, I knew the movie was coming, and I should have thought about it more and, and thought, oh, this could be an Arts and Leisure piece, but, you know, I also thought that's, like, really inside baseball, like, why are we going to write about it, so. If only cool. you knew that Batman and Batgirl were going to yeah, have a really big scene. Had I known that. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. It, it just goes to show there's no easy answers. Like, I still haven't learned the best approach to covering comics. And there are uh, L.A. reporters who cover the movies. There's TV reporters who cover the shows. So there's a lot of coverage to be had. You mentioned your husband, and I know that when you guys travel, one of the ways he gets you to travel is, <laughs> is you know, the fact that you would have the opportunity to explore new comic shops wherever you're visiting. Uh, so, you know, again, going back to the comic shop in my comic shop history, have there been any stores in particular that have really made a strong impression on you, either positively or negatively? Because, you know, we all know there are all kinds of comic shops out there. There are all kinds of comic shops out there. <laughs> For sure. Uh, the, f the first one that came to mind was uh, Comics Ex Experience in San Francisco. It was a, a great store. I mean, I visited it in the early, I guess the late 90s. Uh, just really spacious, very airy. I guess that's the same thing. They just had lots of like uh, bundles of comics, which I really liked. So there was like Hawk and Dove, the 20 issues as a set. And I thought, no, that's, that sort of appeals to me. So I just like a nice big chunk of comics. Which era of Hawk and Dove? The, uh, the Kiesels when they did it. Oh, okay. uh, the female Dove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. Was that uh, the one where Rob Liefeld did an issue or two? He did the miniseries. He did the miniseries. So it was okay. like the follow-up uh, series. And then Forbidden Planet in London was amazing. It was probably one of the biggest comic stores I had been to at the time. Um, I really just like to go to the local store. I was in Pittsburgh last weekend, and I actually can't remember the name of the store, but it was great. Uh, and I picked up a Darwin Cook Supergirl shirt there. So always ex an excuse to spend money. Gotcha. Forbidden Planet is great. I, I was lucky enough to be there, and I mean, the, it's mostly filled with with American stuff. But I mean, the, those guys, those guys know their stuff. They really do. I had some great conversations when I was over there, and I bought far too much stuff than I should have tried to ship home from London. But uh, I actually was in LA after the San Diego convention, and I was lucky enough to go buy Golden Apple Comics. That shop was great. I really enjoyed my time there. Um, I bought all my new books for the week. I was looking around, looking at literally everything they had on the walls. I mean, if I ever move to L.A., that's, that's going to try to be my local store. Nice. Very cool. I don't know if you've ever been to North Carolina. There's a store there called Acme Comics. No, I haven't been no. there. They're great friends of the show, and, and from what I've you know seen and, and heard, they do their own podcast as well. It sounds like a great store. That's one that I definitely hope to, to make it to as well. Um, you know, we could go to Heroes Con one year, make a make a little road trip. I, you know, I think that's I think that's going to have to happen. Do some do some on the road coverage, my friend. This is something to think about. Yeah, yeah that no, would be I, awesome. It's supposed to be a great convention. Yeah, I mean, I've heard nothing but great things about it. I know it's you know obviously smaller than you know New York or San Diego and very art you know artist 
centric. So I think that would be cool and a, and a fun trip. Yeah, it's it's a great show. I mean, it is it is night and day with with San Diego and New York, but but not in a bad way. And it is one I would go back to in a heartbeat if the opportunity presented itself. George, is there anything else that you would like to discuss or that I didn't ask you that I should have? I, you were pretty thorough. And I, <laughs> so I think we've covered just about everything. But thank you. It's been a lot of fun. George, can I ask you a question if that's okay? Sure. Um, so you've been doing this a very long time, and that is awesome. I mean, as far as I can tell, you've been writing about comics like before people were necessarily asking us about them. I mean, before the movies and everything else. Um, so reading your stuff is a joy because, I mean, this definitely comes from a place of love as far as I can tell. And just speaking with you here, it's like, oh, great. This guy's a big comic nerd. I can I can really get into it with him. So that that is really great. Um, but on the journalism side, you know, Anthony and I are, are, are casual. It sounds like Anthony's going to be... Uh, more of a pro than I am, but do you like what advice would you give us? So like, you know, I don't have many stories to my name, but what's like some obvious things that you've seen people suffer from that we should try to avoid? That's a great question. If you don't mind me asking, if you do, I, I no, no, I, I don't mind you asking. I, I just need to think about the answer for a little bit. But I mean, it sounds like you guys were really well prepared for the panels that you attended, uh, reading all the the uh, related material beforehand, like seeing the podcast, uh, hearing the podcast before that. Um, I mean, be prepared. That's like the big thing. It's just like I sometimes I don't have time, but uh, when I have enough lead time, I, I just obviously I try to read the comics. I try to read other stuff they've written. Uh, I look up reviews that uh, the creator or the book has uh, received just so I can get a full picture of like what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I'm not afraid to follow up. So typically when I end an interview, uh, I'll have their contact information. I'll say, it's like, you know, we're going to stop here, but I am certain that as soon as I hang up the <laughs> phone, I'm going to think of a question that I should have asked. So I'll just follow up afterwards and make sure everything is, I, I have everything I need. Thank you. Yeah, the preparation aspect, I mean, certainly that's been my experience with, with doing this podcast is that that's where uh, I, the editing process takes a little bit of time, but it's mostly, yeah, preparing for this and um you know, so I think that's that's fantastic advice. And actually, I thought of something else that I should have asked you. <laughs> so, as Mike said, you've been doing this for a while now, and it seems like you have still, you know, maintained that that fire, that passion for for the hobby. But has that been challenging? Because again, I feel like that can be the case when you take that passion and you turn it into your career. This is your job; you're covering it. I mean, are you still able to maintain your you know your fandom? I guess. It can definitely be challenging. I mean, I wake up every Wednesday and I'm usually looking forward to like downloading the latest comics and reading them all. Uh, there are times like right now I have four deadlines. Uh, yeah, I have four deadlines ahead of me. There are four articles that are all due within two weeks. So it's a little overwhelming right now. It's just like reading a comic feels like work. Uh, when I have to write these other pieces. But once they're out of the way, uh, I'll think, oh, like, I have, I need to pitch four more pieces, so I have the next pieces coming. So it's, I don't know, it's just like an endless cycle. Um, I'm sure like everything else, there, there are times when you love comics more than not. Uh, I think we're in a pretty good golden age right now. There's just so much material out there that it's, it's just, the, the, the problem is just keeping up with all of it. Uh, I think on Wednesday, I downloaded 20 single issues of various things and i thought this is a lot to read yeah uh, and i'm still not quite done what's on your pull list um what are the highlights like what are the books that anthony and i should be reading that we may not be sure um let me think i think green arrow from rebirth was a nice surprise because uh, i hadn't really read the uh, new 52 version i'm a big titans fan so um i'm resisting liking the book though i think it's gonna i think it's gonna wear me down <laughs> 
uh, I love Walking Dead. I, I can't go, uh, I guess, a month without reading that. And I'm lucky enough where they mail me the issue a few days before it comes nice. out. Yeah. So uh, that's great. So that's one I actually read uh, in print. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I love Archie, and I, I feel weird saying that, but it's, no. the book has been so good. We love Archie. We love Archie. That we was one of the panels Archie. that I covered at the convention. And I actually, on preview night, you know, Warner Brothers, every year they show uh, pilots for their upcoming shows. So I got to see uh, Powerless, and I wrote about that. That was interesting. I, I think there's some promise there. Uh, and I also got to see Riverdale. Now, I've never read, Ar- or I had never read Archie prior to that. Um, so I didn't really go in with any preconceived notions or expectations. Uh, and I liked it. I mean, they're they're definitely going for a little darker, yeah. more adult vibe. You know, it's funny because I think you're the target audience for that show having nothing to do with comics just because you tend to like CW shows. So I think you, you were an interesting cross-section because you knew the names, you knew the background, you actually know some of the people who work at Archie, but at the same time, that type of drama might be something that you'd have caught a couple episodes of just because. Probably. I mean, I, I keep telling people it's like the Smallville version of Archie, and Smallville was my favorite show, so right. uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, it was right up my alley. Uh, and then, yeah, I went to the panel, and they were talking about uh, both the show and everything that's going on in the comic books right now. And I picked up uh, the first issue of the new Betty and Veronica yep. and the first trade of the current Archie series. So uh, you don't need to feel funny saying that at all. I think they're doing some really cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Archie's great. I really do. The, the Mark Wade book is so good. And it's the first one that I've ever read that's, that's by Archie. Um, I read The Afterlife after Archie because, you know, our, our dearly departed alternate realities had the, the variant cover and that just hooked me huh. to get the whole series. Oh, right, but, yeah. But yeah, no, I... I Archie's great, and I would recommend them to anyone looking to pick up, you know, get on the ground floor or something. And as far as articles, so this episode will go up, uh, I believe, August 10th, so uh, just about a, you know, a week and a half or so. Uh, any articles coming up over the rest of the summer uh, that you would point people to, people uh, should keep an eye out for? Right. I, I mean, I, I can't say what they're all about. Right. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, but I have no spoilers. Zach will have to. Spoilers. Zach, right. Zach, stop listening. <laughs> oh, I think I can talk about one. So I have four. I have four pieces coming up. One is about a big uh, collector of original comic book art, a profile on him. There's another about. Uh, this is actually. She's been written about before, but we haven't. So it's sort of my excuse to write about her. She does these. Uh, her name escapes me right now, but she does these crazy videos where she paints herself with makeup to look like a comic book panel. Yeah. and it, So it's not like wow. a costume. It's like she looks like a comic book panel. Right. It's kind of crazy. So, of course, because I'm a Titans fan, I noticed her, she, she became uh, the female dove. Oh, okay. It's like, who would do that? <laughs> so it's like, I need to know who this woman is. Uh, and I have two other pieces beyond that that I, one of them is escaping me. But uh, So, yeah, it'll be a steady stream for the next four weeks. Well, we'll be sure to keep an eye out for those articles. Hey, George, I got one other question. You just mentioned original art. You said you had some hanging in your office. If you don't mind me asking, what do you have up? Uh, I do. I have a couple of uh, George Perez pages, uh, Titans West, Who's Who pages. That's how sad my uh, addiction to the Titans. By the way, you keep saying sad. (laughs) I am with you 100%. I mean, if if you replace the word Teen Titans with X-Men or anyone on the Marvel side, believe me, I am with you. I don't know these characters as well as you do, but I am jealous nonetheless. I just feel they're very obscure. If it was like, you know, the Justice League, okay. But these Titans West, it's sort of like no great characters. Yeah. Uh, so the the Who's Who pages when he uh, updated them, a Fred Hembeck uh, recreation of JLA two hundred, the cover. Oh, nice. uh, oh that's per- yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah that's it's perfect. a first yeah, comic. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of awesome. Yeah. Is, is two hundred the one with 
Libra or the Seven Soldiers? No, no, or? no. 200 is the big anniversary issue where the new guard fights the old guard. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, you've mentioned your, your, your love of Titans. What is it in particular that, that draws you to them? Uh, I mean, I think back in the day, it's uh, Marv Wolfman and George Perez. It was sort of like the ultimate DC team. I mean, the art was extraordinary. The, the heroes were put through just a lot of things that most superheroes were not put through. And I was just like, I was hypnotized by it. It's like, it was probably what, five, maybe six really good years before the terrible, terrible times. came. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I lived through like 10 of really terrible years as a Titans fan, but you know. They, they bounce back often. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you very much for taking part in this discussion. It's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. Yeah, thank you, Anthony, very much for, for doing this. Every time I come on, I, I feel like I have a better time. So this is, this is really great. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. A lot of fun. Awesome. Terrific. Well, this has been Mild-Mannered Reporters. Keep tuning in for future episodes. And until then, don't be a flat squirrel. <laughs>